Welcome. You're listening to Financial Independence with Roshan Langani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas from the world of financial planning, investment management, tax planning, insurance planning, and estate planning. We're here to help you achieve your financial goals. Here in season two, we're focused on helping you design and build your own financial plan. Roshan Langani and Eric Olson are certified financial planner practitioners that serve clients across the U.S. They offer financial planning and investment advice through RTA Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor, and securities through RTA Wealth Management, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, and NFA. Hi, my name is Roshan Langani, and welcome to Financial Independence with Roshan, Adrian, and Eric. We are here to help you reach financial independence. We're doing it this season by focusing on helping you build your own financial plan so you can put yourself on track to achieve this. Uh, And today we're going to continue discussing data for your financial plan and inputting data. And uh, uh, last, that was supposed to be the last episode to go over all of it, but we found that we had so much information that it made sense to split it up. So last time we talked about life expectancy, some property stuff. Today, we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about how to input data and how to look at your data for your investments. So, uh, Eric, welcome to uh, Financial Independence with your name on it. Hey, thanks very much, Roshan. And Adrian, good to be back with you, too. Same, same. I'm really part, uh, excited to be a part of another one of these podcasts. And I feel like people are going to draw a lot of good content out of this data input when it comes to your investments. So we'll start with, uh, with, with the investments. The way that uh, we go through this, I'm, I'm looking at how we break it down as we put the data inputs in. And we separate out cash uh, as a separate vehicle. Not that cash is necessarily uh, an investment. I mean, it could be if that was a decision that, that was made. But looking at cash just in your checking savings and money market as opposed to uh, cash in your investment account that, that you're looking to invest. So with cash and inputting, uh, inputting cash uh, or accounting for it in your financial plan, it seems pretty, pretty basic. Uh, the software we have, we talked about inflation previously. My software is currently using 3.74%. And uh, it's, a, uh, it's a rate that's based on historical inflation. So it actually does adjust over time if inflation were to go up or go down. Um, but then for your cash rates of returns, that's another input and assumption that we that we use here. Eric, what are you using for uh, rates of res- assumed rates of returns for cash? Pretty modest, but uh, in historical perspective, but a little higher than current. So it's in the mid twos. So you uh, on our inflation discussion, you had said you use four percent as inflation, right? And so your cash target is not equal to inflation. That's right. Uh, and can, can you expand on that a little bit? Tell me about, about why you made that decision and how, how you decided on two. Yeah. So all of the interest, uh, pardon me, all of the uh, assumptions about asset class returns that I'm using are ones that I subscribe to through my financial planning software that are uh, developed as 20 year projections by Morningstar. And so... um, those they, they may not be in complete agreement with everyone else, but their 20 year outlook for cash is in that mid twos area. So Morningstar believes over the next 20 years, cash will return in the mid twos. That's right. Now, you uh, does Morningstar have a 20 year projection for inflation as well? Uh, the. In this case, Morningstar uh, does not have an explicit 20-year forecast for inflation, but you could derive that by looking at the difference in uh, interest rate assumptions for a 10-year treasury and a uh, 10-year tip bond. And then you could make that inference, at least you could make it as a 10-year inference, not a 20-year inference. Well, the reason I ask is because you're using... 
a historical inflation target, but you're using a forward looking return target. And I'm wondering, do you think they essentially does do those data points not line up? Or is this something so insignificant that I am wasting time with this and we should move on to the next section? <laughs> I don't know if you're wasting time with it. Uh, I, actually, uh, if you, a, a number of other uh, asset class forecasts that I've seen put on an inflation adjusted basis cash as a negative returning asset for the foreseeable future. Usually those projections run 7, 10 or slightly longer uh, in, in terms of years, 7 or 10 years or longer. So um, I think in this particular case, it's a mix of um, with Morningstar, it's it's just that for whatever reason, they haven't chosen to explicitly model a forecast on all of that. They're sticking with nominal returns uh, for each of these asset classes. Yeah, and I think we see that today, right? If you look at, uh, and not only today, but at all times, if you look at, well, what's inflation? And let's just say inflation's at 2%. Well, what can you get in even a decent yielding uh, money market? And that's closer to one. Right. So cash will um, grow at a slower rate than inflation. I would say more or less. You're, it's a trade off between return and safety and liquidity. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think that safety is uh, key to what you just mentioned there, Eric, where, you know, you're not getting the best type of yield out of it, but it it is a, a, a like a smart play to do at the time when you can, you know, look for future investments in the future. Mm hmm. Keeping a little dry powder. Yeah, uh, that's what uh, Buffett always says, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, before we move on to the next section, more of goals and targets, but how much do you typically think needs to be kept in cash or what do you typically advise? So... Uh, that's a, that's a good question, and it's going to vary a lot from one client to the next. Here's how I approach it. So there's several pools of cash that I usually encourage clients to to consider having. One is just a basic emergency fund, and that basic emergency fund is going to be covering not necessarily the luxury art items, but the the basic um, fixed costs of living from anywhere from three to six to some cases even 12 months of of committed spending and the variation on that incidentally is if normally if there's a household that has two earners and their their wage earners in fairly stable industries then if for some reason one of them loses a job then there, it, there's, it's not like all of the income has been shut off. And so in that case, I'm willing to say, hey, that cushion could be as little as maybe three months. Uh, at the other extreme would be, let's say, a single earner. And in the case of that single earner, they are in an occupation where it is a much more um, uncertain year-to-year expectation that they would remain employed. You know, there are just some businesses where, let's say it's in sales or in other sorts of careers that are maybe construction or cyclically related. In those instances, there can be ex more extended periods of unemployment more frequently. And so in those cases, I would say it, it go longer because you don't have a cushion from a second income and you're in a somewhat uncertain uh industry or income position to begin with. So um, that's that's my usual recommendation about the emergency reserve. On top of that, as we were talking about last time, if there are some short-term goals that they're saving, saving for, let's say a new vehicle or some home improvement or a vacation, then I would just say the, the cash to have on hand that you're trying to build is commensurate with the size of whatever it is that you're trying to fund. Do you do separate accounts, though? So if I'm if I'm your client and I tell you I want to um, purchase, a, I have my emergency fund and then I also want a car fund. 
Do you lump those together in the same account or do you separate them out? Typically, I separate them out. Uh, first, it's super easy to do with any financial institution. They're, they don't seem reluctant to open up another account. And for that reason alone, it, I think it helps clients to n- actually physically name those uh, those accounts even on their, their bank website or their credit union website. And so that it's clear in their own mind that, in fact, they have earmarked that money and it's not just this available pool of money for anything. And it also just by getting it out of their checking account, for sure, <laughs> it doesn't look like it's spendable money at any given time. It just is, you, there's something psychological about looking at having this huge, this huge surplus of cash that makes you feel a little bit more liberal about your spending. I think get it out of there, put it into uh, some sort of either a CD or a money market account or something like that. And um, usually in my case, I would recommend a money market account and then just start building um, in each of those buckets separately. So, you know, when you've arrived uh, at the target for each of those goals that you're trying to fund. Yeah, that's a smart point, Eric. Definitely keeping it out of hands, out of a checkings account makes you a lot less likely to spend it. And going off that, Roshan, do you think what are kind of like the pros and cons to having in separate accounts like you mentioned? Oh, I definitely agree with uh, Eric that if you keep it all in one account, you might be more liberal with your spending. You also might lose what it's for. Right. You might if it's all lumped in one account, you might let's just say you have your you use the car example. We use the cash reserves and then a travel fund and uh, and um, you throw any uh, a house home remodeling fund. Let's say you've got that. Once again, your cash reserves, your new car fund, your home remodeling fund and your um, um, I even forgot what that category, the the travel funds. So those four things, I can't even repeat them to you after 30 seconds of what they were, let alone keep track of which dollars are for which fund if they're in the same commingled account. So I definitely think that keeping them separate is, uh, is very valuable. And then, um, my argument to you, Eric, is then I wouldn't necessarily count it as cash, right? You would still input it in there, but it wouldn't be cash as cash reserves. It would just be a savings fund for those items. If you needed it and there was a major emergency, it's there, but it's already spoken for. Yeah, I think that makes good sense. Uh, That precisely what you've just said. I completely agree with that. Okay, so now that we've input cash, the next thing we look at are taxable investments. And what we'll do with that is we will name the account, you know, clients joint account or individual account, and then we'll just put in the holdings. We typically put in the uh, number of shares and the symbol, and then our software calculates, uh, you know, values and so on. So it can move with the market. Eric, is there anything more uh, complicated or any more details that someone needs to be aware of when inputting data in this section? So if someone's doing their own financial plan and they're really trying to be very careful about all the the subtle elements that can affect the actual spendable money that they might have out into the future, one critical assumption is, or at least one critical factor that they should be observing is one we've touched on in the discussion of cash, and that's what is their assumption about returns to that asset class. And that's not something that um, that either of us need to do in financial planning software per se, because we usually have put our settings in uh, directly already. But if somebody is doing this at home and they're doing it in Excel or some sort of spreadsheet, then they do need to sort of think on a blended basis what's going to be taking place with that with each of those asset classes and whether or not they're rebalancing. But another factor is what is the cost basis of those taxable assets? Because if they assume that they're never going to adjust that portfolio or reposition that portfolio, then uh, if they let it run for 20 years with the original cost basis and don't let it, you know, don't touch it in any way as part of their assumption, they'll have to take into consideration uh, what is the cost basis so that they can arrive at an estimate of what the gains are. And then it's on the basis of that, those gains, then they would say, okay, well, what's the, what's the tax rate that we assume will apply to those long-term capital gains and then uh, apply that accordingly. There's also, you, you would want to measure for different asset classes, 
what amount you think would be coming back out on an annual basis in one of two main forms. Form number one would be for typically for bonds that are taxable bonds, the income, because that would be taxed at one's ordinary income tax rates, at least under current tax law. On the, by the contrast, the dividends that are paid out of the stock portions of their portfolio, particularly the U.S. stock portions, are going to be taxed as qualified dividends, and those will instead be taxed at the long-term capital gains tax rate. So um, while on the one hand, they, the, the person would have some degree of control over when they would realize the long-term capital gains, they have very little control or when they're going to incur a tax obligation on the annual distributions of dividends and income. Nevertheless, that needs to be factored in in a taxable account. Yeah, so there's so much that you touched on. I want to highlight a few things. One is a very important one, cost basis. That's definitely something we input as well that I neglected to say. Very important when planning out your taxes. The second thing you said is uh, some kind of assumed rate of return. Now, our software, the one that I use, calculates a rate of return based on historical performance of those holdings. But then we'll actually adjust it based on uh, the individual's risk tolerance, uh, especially if we're suggesting making a change. So any thoughts uh, on that, Eric? What, what are you using for rates of return, historical rates of return based on their holdings? Or are you making some adjustments based on future expectations? Well, so again, because I I elected in this case to subscribe to Morningstar forecasts because I thought, well, they're, I, I'm going to assume they've got a pretty big team on it that'll do it at least as rigorous a job as I would myself and be inclined to do. So it'll save me a little bit of time there. So I use those 20-year uh, forecasts. But as far as, uh, as adjusting the overall portfolio level return expectations on a client-by-client basis, that's going to depend on the weighted average of those returns. Let me give an example. Right now, uh, as we're having this, as we're recording this, the forecast that Morningstar has provided as a 20-year nominal compound re- compounded return on large cap growth stocks in the U.S., is 5.025%, much lower than historically has been um, observed. So, but that's not the main point is whether it's higher or lower than historical. It's just the, the number that they're offering right now. Meanwhile, since we've talked about cash, let's just go to, to cash. Their projection for the 20-year return on cash is 2.681%. So let's say that I had a portfolio, and I'm not recommending anyone have such a portfolio, but just to make this super simple, if someone had one investor A has a portfolio that consists of nothing but those large cap growth stocks. Well, then the return assumptions that we would make to that client's portfolio for those 20 years, in accordance at least with these Morningstar estimates, is precisely the uh, is precisely equal to the single asset class that they have in there, which is 5.025. Let's say investor B, on the other hand, is an all cash portfolio. So in their case, while we wouldn't adjust the expectations on the returns to cash, we'd say since their portfolio consists of nothing except cash, then our return assumptions would be 2.681. And if they had a 50-50 blend of those two assets, it would be whatever is the halfway point between those. I'm not doing the math quite as fast as I'd like to, but I'm, I'm guessing that it's somewhere around uh, uh, 3.65, something like that. Okay. And, and that's something you manually calculate or your software does that for you? The software will calculate the overall portfolio level return based on whatever is the blended weight of all the various asset classes that are incorporated into that particular client's risk tolerance. So, for example, if they are a moderate investor, their portfolio as uh, using this at some point, we'll, maybe we'll have a podcast where we'll go into this in greater depth, the, the concept of something known as modern portfolio theory. It has some strengths. It has some weaknesses. We can get into both the strengths and the weaknesses, but assuming for the moment that they follow a modern portfolio theory based approach with some constraints, there's a mathematical process that undergirds that Nobel Prize winning for what it's worth. 
And that uh, mathematical um, exercise comes up with a recommended allocation to various asset classes that this, that the math has been told is available to take into consideration. So in my case, typically I'll show it 13 or 14 different asset classes and say, based on the uh, forecast returns, the forecast volatility and the forecast correlations between these asset classes, what should be the appropriate weightings on these? And bear in mind, this is a moderate investor. So keep the all of the stocks, whether U.S. or international, emerging markets, what have you, limited to 60% of the portfolio and keep all the bonds limited to 40% of the portfolio. So that's, that's a constraint that's imposed in that case. And so um, it will come back then with, okay, 10% here, 12% there, you know, 9% here, 2% there, and so forth and so on, until it has used all of those asset classes in the way that it judges mathematically would provide the best return for the lowest overall portfolio level, level volatility. And with that, using those weights, times the forecast returns, uh, you know, on appropriately adjusted, gives us a portfolio level forecast. Okay. And if someone were to say to you, Eric, I'm not a professional, I'm doing my own financial plan, what should I use for my rate of return? Would you have an answer for them? Yes. So if, if they were saying, hey, what would I, what would I, what should I use? I would say, well, if you're a moderate investor, and you are willing to accept the fairly subdued forecasts that Morningstar is giving for various asset classes, then I would say that 60-40 portfolio, if you built it more or less with the weights that I you know, just was mentioning, would be you should use a forecast for the next 20 years of compounding at 5.4%. Okay, so if you were to use that 5.4%, uh, as a moderate investor, uh, and that sounds, sounds reasonable, and then you're using inflation of, um, 4%. So really, they're only gaining ground on that 1.4% per they, year. That is correct. Now, if, if, uh, returns are higher, that's as a planning assumption. Yes, that's correct. If returns are higher and inflation is lower or vice versa, of course, the the actual spendable returns, the real returns, we call them, w could differ a lot. But that's at least the starting point. OK, yeah, those are some interesting points. And I, I'm not sure if uh, Roshan or you touched on this, Eric, but um, I realize um, risk tolerance is a big uh, proponent in this software as long as, um, you know, splitting it between um, equities and bonds. Uh, how, how do you go about the diversification process as well? Is that implemented as well? Or is that something you have to do outside of it when you're, um, this is for you, um, Eric and you, Roshan. How do you uh, also go about, you know, diversifying and bringing that up? Or is that kind of implementing the software as well? Or do you do it outside of it? Yeah, Roshan, why don't you answer that first? Well, uh, so what I would say is at this point, when we're talking data inputs, uh, I'm just putting in what they have. Uh, and then when we get to portfolio construction, well, we'll go over risk tolerance as well. After the, this section of data inputs, I go over risk tolerance. And then when we go into portfolio construction, that's where I touch on diversification. And there I'll look at diverse, diversification, not only by asset class, but also by investment style. Uh, so it's, it's, so we're using multiple thought processes within the risk tolerance of the clients to try to get, uh, portfolios with similar target returns, but finding their holdings using different methodologies. And what I find is that makes their uh, portfolio a little smoother. The goal here, uh, the way I try to use diversification is I want to have my target rate of return with as little volatility as possible because that gets me uh, the assumption I need for the financial plan. Uh, one of the flaws with planning, especially if you're going to just do it on your own with Excel, is uh it's going to straight line your returns and order of returns makes a big difference what i mean by that is if there are losses in there the losses happening earlier versus later can make a a huge difference and um if you have variability 
of your returns, which are ine- which are inevitable. You know, the the um, the markets move up and down. You're not going to get the same percentage that you're assuming on your software every year. It's important to minimize that as much as possible so that your financial plan can be as close to accurate as possible. Yeah. So I just want to reinforce what you've just said. So that problem, which you mentioned, which is well, based on the nature of the fact that we don't get, again, coming back to the previous example, whatever our assumed long-term compound rate of return is for any risk tolerance, we know for a fact that the one thing that will absolutely not be true is that we will have that return each and every year. Yes, exactly. We know we'll have higher and we'll have lower. And the problem isn't as big. That variability is not that just they'll bounce around, but the real problem for people who are in the decumulation stage is what's known as the sequence of return risk. So if you happen to get, let's say, a 30-year retirement horizon, And out of that, let's say you have one out of, I'm just going to say four years is negative. So roughly seven and a half out of those 30 years would be negative. And the other 22 and a half years would be positive. Uh, That's, that's one thing. It's one thing if it's three, three positive, you know, three positive, one negative, three positive, one negative. It's a very different thing. If you have, let's say of your allotment of roughly seven and a half, if you get three or four of those right up front. In the fir- as you just are coming out of the gate, if you're if you're taking money out of the portfolio and you're at the very same time that your portfolio is getting clobbered for three or four years straight, that's going to lead to a very different outcome than the person who wind, winds up with let's say three or four of those seven and a half at the very end of the line and mostly positive returns in the years leading up to that point. Even though the compound average annual return is the same, the outcome for the retiree is a very different outcome. So, um, Eric, let me interrupt. I want to give an example, a really simple one. If you invest $100 and you lose 50% this year, you're down $50. If you then gain 100%, you're back up to your one original 100 but your average rate of return is is a uh, 25% positive because you take the minus 50 from year 1 you add that to the plus 100 for year 2 so that gives you 50 then you divide it by 2 that's an average of 25% but your bank account has not moved a penny and that's what we're discussing with how important the sequence is for your rate of returns if you start out your retirement you're drawing money out right now and living off of it and then you have a big hit on your portfolio uh that can be disastrous for your long-term future yeah that's so right and by the way you've highlighted one other way way in which people have to be careful about their assumptions um the in the example that you gave the average rate of return was 25 percent per year because it was 101 year minus 50 the next put them together you had a uh, the 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 math of that is 50% return divided by 2 years but the truth is is if instead of using an average an- annual rate of return if you use a compound annual rate of return the compound annual rate of return in that case was precisely zero because you yes. ended up precisely where you started so be careful. People need to be careful about the assumptions that they're using uh, in this. The, the difference between annual, uh, the difference between an average and a compound rate of return. Yeah, and typically when you, if, if you're looking at a um, uh, any kind of investment and they give you their historical rates of return, it's typically averages they list, not the compound. And that's why you should uh, hunt around for something that's known, uh, especially an inv- and time-weighted rate of return or uh, an investor-weighted rate of return. It's so funny. Some There's some mutual funds out there, and I won't name them, uh, but that because this is a, more an indictment of human behavior than it is an indictment of these funds, um, is that while the funds have a long-term compound rate of return, that is positive, the investor rate of return on those funds is negative. And the reason for that is 
which is such a, you know, just a common feature of the human psychology is, is that people after a few years where that fund has had a really spectacular run, investors are diving in from left and from the right to try to get and be part of that. And the minute it has a, a, a few down years, they start bailing out. So the, the tendency is, is that on balance for the investors who've been part of that, who didn't stay with it for the long time, more were buying it at highs and, and then selling at lows than was true uh, of their opposite counterparts. But that's yeah. not a data gathering issue. That's just a human behavior foible. Uh, yes, it, it, it is. And I we see that all the time. They're essentially buying high and selling low just based on the historical returns. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to move on to the next section. Now, we've touched on a lot of uh, pieces that apply to investments in general. But my next category uh, that I've got for investments are qualified uh, retirement plans that are tax deferred. I've got Roth IRAs separately. Uh, but those are the 401ks, 403bs, TSP traditional IRA, to name a few, uh, we'll input those values in here. I'll do the same thing where we'll put in the uh, number of shares and the, um, uh, and the symbol, and it'll calculate the share price, or you can just put in the, the balance here. Do you do anything differently than the taxable section uh, that we discussed, inputting all the data? Do you make any adjustments because it's tax deferred? Uh, the not in terms of inputting the data, it's going to be later when we're looking at the um, it's when we're looking at the spendable results of that portfolio that we have to make some adjustments. So in the inputting stage, we don't need to be concerned with in most cases, we don't need to be concerned with cost basis. I'll, I'll put an asterisk by that, though, and, and add that if you made contributions into a 401k or an IRA that were on an after-tax basis, then you do want to track that separately because while you'll owe taxes on the growth of that money that you put in on an after-tax basis, you won't owe money or owe taxes on the cost basis itself. I would just advise clients as this is an aside, try and avoid doing that. If you're gonna do that, um, the, the one time you might consider that is if all of your assets, all of your qualified assets are in, a, in a, an employer-based plan, let's say a 401k, and then you have an IRA that's open. If you are going to make you know, any after-tax contributions to a tax, supposedly tax-deferred tool, like a you know, pre-tax, tax-deferred tool like an IRA, but you make after-tax contributions, my suggestion to you is, is that... Um, you consider at some point in the not too distant future after making that contribution of making it, converting it into a Roth. Uh, if you do that, then um, you'll, you'll avoid having to track the, the cost basis of that qualified asset. So that's specific to if you have a, your 401k, uh, 401k, 403b, TSP, whatever, whatever the plan is, and you've made after-tax contributions, when you leave that employer and roll that money over, you're saying convert the after-tax portion to a Roth. Well, if you um, have mingled that money, some pre-tax contributions and some after-tax contributions in a 401k, and then you eventually roll it over, you now have to track those two parts separately. Subsequent legislation made it possible to uh, roll the after-tax part, not with its growth, but just the after-tax part, roll it directly into a Roth. But I would just say in general, it, uh, try to avoid making after-tax contributions into, a, into the same pool of funds where you already have pre-tax funds. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I would follow up what you said. So first, try to avoid those after-tax contributions. Uh, but second, if you have them, I would say seek professional help with a uh, financial advisor and or a CPA, uh, probably both, just to make sure you make the right decision there um, when you roll that over. Yeah, at that time, you have to make that decision. Um, the other the question I'd ask you about, do you make any adjustments? Um, 
with your returns, your software assumes there. Uh, I'm sorry, your software takes into account that there are qualified funds. So they, your money goes in there. The software will calculate the minimum distributions. But if someone's out there using a spreadsheet and they're just use, would you then say um, you use a you could you could potentially use a slightly higher rate of return to account for the fact that it's tax deferred? Now imagine I'm sitting with a spreadsheet, not with you know professional financial planning software. Or would you say just use the same rate of return and uh, that's a conservative assumption and so you should just be better off? I would use the same return if it's built the same, but I wouldn't make the subtraction for taxes, as we discussed earlier, for um, dividends and income distributions in that given year. Uh, so because those are just staying in the account and there's no taxable consequence. On the other hand, when it finally reaches time to say, hey, I'm turning off the paycheck and I'm turning on distributions from my uh, my investment accounts to replace that income that I was previously bringing home as a as a paycheck, then you need to treat the distributions differently. And so uh, here's what I would do if I'm setting up a spreadsheet, I would have one section of the spreadsheet tracking the uh, the growth of the after-tax, what we call non-qualified portfolio. And I would have a, a gross growth, and then I would have subtractions for taxes due to the dividend and income payments that, that I incurred that year from those holdings. And then somehow that tax is paid. I can either pay, pay that tax out of cash flow or I can pay that tax out of the account. So the, the person who's modeling this needs to make that decision. And then, and then there's a net amount at the end of the year. And then that's the part that they would continue to grow at the whatever it is their assumed growth rate on that portfolio. Not the gross amount, but the after-tax net amount. Distinctly from that, though, I would have a separate section devoted to the qualified assets and still another devoted to Roth and tax-free assets. And in the qualified assets case, I would not be making any of those year-by-year subtractions. But when it came time to model retirement distributions, then every penny that's coming out of those accounts, not just the the capital gains, as in the case of the non-qualified or after-tax accounts that I was discussing just a moment ago, but every penny that comes out of those qualified accounts needs to be treated as though it was a dollar of ordinary income with no special tax treatment and not just on gains. And, and then the subtractions for taxes made accordingly. Okay, I'm going to try to summarize this. The taxable account, you have an annual, um, you have a column that's annually pulling out distributions to pay taxes on it. I shouldn't say pulling out, but annually you have a section where you're paying taxes on it. You don't have that annual tax column for the qualified accounts. And then when it comes time to withdraw the money, the qualified accounts, you make sure those are taxed at ordinary income. Right. Okay. Then next, Roth IRA accounts. The money goes in uh, on an after-tax basis, comes out tax-free. Is there any special treatment that you have for this if you're inputting it on a spreadsheet? No, this is the easiest of all because it's going to grow without any taxes and it's going to be distributed without any taxes. I mean, assuming that you don't make distributions prematurely for um, not, any disallowed uh, purpose. So um, anyhow, if you are just waiting until you're 59 and a half or later and then you're making distributions. Oh, and by the way, it's been at least five years since you opened that Roth or made conversions into that Roth. Then, um, then yeah, it's uh, there's no tax subtractions to monitor at all. Okay, and I will give you a list of other accounts to see if there's any treatment uh, that you do anything differently. Just because I think these will be simple and there won't be too much, and then we'll we'll move on to one other section where I know we'll have some thoughts. But um, uh, I'm going to keep 529s out of it because that's more education planning. I think we're focused on this season with retirement planning. Mm-hmm. So let's assume there are no 529 balances that apply. HSAs, stock options, grants, deferred comp, any treatment uh, that's different from the types of accounts we've described already. 
yes. Yeah, so uh, with uh, with stock options for executive compensation, it's going to differ how you'll treat them taxably, whether they're non-qualified stock options or if they're incentive stock options. And it's a big topic, and I won't try to get into it right now. But um, the person who's doing this at home needs to kind of do their homework and figure out what's the, the tax treatment of those or work with someone who does. And then so that's the stock options and grants piece. Uh, the HSAs or deferred comp, uh, any, is there any treatment that you would have to do with the data inputs here? The deferred comp, I would treat like a, a non-qualified, or pardon me, like a qualified asset where you didn't have to pay taxes on it up front, but you do have to pay taxes on it later. And with the HSA, the beautiful thing is, is that if you, you know, you put it in uh, and get a tax deduction for your contributions to it, it grows tax free. And then if you spend it on um, medical care, it's also uh, or health, you know, qualified health expenses, then it's also tax free. So um, that's a that that's different, a slightly different than any of the other categories that we've discussed so far. Well, most similar to the uh, Roth, right? The fact that it's tax-free, just it's specific to medical. Yes, except that in the case of a contribution to a Roth, there's no tax deduction for it, whereas contributions into an HSA are subtractions from income. Great point. Great point. All right. So the final category, uh, annuities. Yes. Uh, And this is where I think this could be a whole show on its own. What are some of the basic points of note uh, that you would make here? Now, annuities typically, uh, there are multiple types, fixed, variable, immediate annuities. The money's going into it on an after-tax basis. You get tax deferral. And then when it comes out, the growth is taxed at ordinary income. Um, Are there, where would you adjust or make make changes in your modeling of your plan with annuities so the first the first distinction i would make or if we're having categories and subcategories the first categorical difference that i would make would be between any iras that i funded in an uh in a ira using ira funds or uh that i funded using roth funds though i don't know why somebody would do that Um, or that I funded using existing after-tax dollars. So let's just observe that in the first two cases, money where you purchased an annuity with uh, with IRA dollars, so therefore it is still an IRA, um, every penny that comes out of that when you make withdrawals will be treated as ordinary income. And similarly, again, though I don't know why you'd do this, but if you funded that with after with money in a Roth IRA, then you would not have any tax consequence on the distributions from it. The third category, though, is where you used taxable money, that is to say after-tax dollars that you had, just like in your checking account or in some other taxable investment, and you went and you bought an annuity. If you bought an annuity that was not annuitized, in other words, so it was, it was uh, let's say, a deferred annuity of some kind, whether that was a variable annuity, whether that was an indexed, you know, uh, indexed annuity, whether that was a fixed annuity. In that case, the, the principle of taxation on those is known as LIFO, last in, first out. So the, uh, at whatever point in time you start making uh, distributions from that annuity, then every penny you take out initially that is growth, no, every penny, the, every penny that you take out that is growth is taxed uh, as ordinary income. And the way that it's structured is that, that you take out growth, take out growth, take out growth until you've used up all your growth. And now you're starting to eat into the dollars that you originally put into that. So if you, let's say, put $100,000 into something like this and it grew to $200,000, and then you started taking distributions of it, the first $100,000 that you took out would be treated as ordinary income. And then the next 100000 that you took out, assuming there was no more growth, mean as you, you took out that first 100000 the next $100,000 you wouldn't pay a penny of tax on because that would be considered your basis. And return that's true, of capital. A return uh, of capital, right. Yeah. So Eric, uh, I'm going to s- simplify this a little bit and tell me if I'm missing something. But if it was, if you bought, 
an annuity with an IRA, with a qualified uh, traditional IRA or a Roth IRA, you would just put them in those categories. Yeah, that would be an IRA and you treat it the same way we discussed previously or a Roth the same way we discussed previously. Mm -hmm. The other annuities, and I'm going to use a variable as an example, uh, and you hit on a, a very important point. It, using your example, you put in a hundred thousand, it grows to two hundred. It's very important to take note that the the one hundred thousand of growth comes out first and is taxable fully at ordinary income. The one hundred thousand of principal is a return of capital, so you would not pay taxes on that. Right. That's a very important thing that I think a lot of people miss. The whole key why people look at annuities in general is you have the tax deferral similar to the qualified plans we discussed earlier where you're not paying taxes every year, but then when you're taking that money out, you're getting hit with that uh, tax right up, right from the beginning, from the first distribution. That's right. And then the, the one, the next subcategory is because everything that we just discussed was working from the assumption that this was a deferred annuity and that the capital was still um, technically owned by the individual who contributed it. If you then take the subsequent step of annuitizing, as that's the process, the annuitizing that annuity, meaning you trade all of the capital that's in it uh, for a guaranteed payment of some amount for of some duration, typically for one's own life or for the lives of both oneself and if one's married, one's spouse or for at least, you know, X number of years. So there's all sorts of choices in there. Uh, but once one makes that decision to say, OK, I'm forfeiting any further claim on the dollars that are in this IRA and I'm turning them over to the annuity company in exchange for they're making a, a, a pledge to me to make these income distributions over whatever is this contractually specified uh, uh, time frame and uh, people. Then, the, again, in the non-qualified setting, where, again, we're not talking about IRA versions of this or Roth versions of this. In that case, then what instead happens is, is that the tax that, that previously you and I both explained would have been paid, um, uh, uh, every penny that came out at initially would have been taxed because that's the growth part. And then later the return of capital here, it's, they're blended together. And so it, they're calculated uh, such that, let's say, again, using that same example of $200,000, and then I annuitized it. 100 was my basis. 100 was growth. I annuitize it. And let's say that the, the annual distribution on that $200,000 thing is $1,000 a month. Then, all right, at $1,000 a month, 500 of that is taxable income as ordinary income, and 500 of it is not. And that goes until the, I've reached whatever was the um, the period at which the the payments of two hundred thousand had been made to me, because that assumes now a hundred thousand of that's been cost. And then from that point forward, it's it's uh, no longer a return of capital, and every dollar that comes out after that point is taxed as ordinary income. Because now I'm into what you might call the I beat I beat the dealer. I beat life expectancy, so I now have to pay taxes on that money coming out. Yes, with the annuities, it gets incredibly incredibly complicated um, uh, on there. The last piece I have that I think we will actually save because I, I feel like this should be maybe an episode on itself is uh, risk tolerance. Reviewing risk tolerance how to figure out what your risk tolerance is, ways to stress test it. So for today, as we wrap up, we talked about investment data inputs, and we will next week go over risk tolerance and risk tolerance assumptions to help you select what assumptions you should make for your uh, financial plan. Eric, any specific takeaways or things that stand out for you today? I guess in just uh, reviewing this, it is with you, uh, it is that there is a lot of complexity in the uh, the modeling of your portfolio and what there's a lot of room for both um, 
doing some homework to figure out what rates you sh are, are prudent and reasonable ones to use as assumptions for the growth of your portfolio, as well as for the, um, for the rate of inflation that you're assuming is eating into the value of that portfolio year by year. And, but it's also, I think, it recognizes that there's a myriad of, um, of rules that govern some of these more specialized investments and keeping track of the tax part of those of those various investments is not a small or insignificant matter. It it matters immensely to the the spendable outcomes that a person can reasonably assume during their retirement. Uh, if they're modeling this on their own, what they're assuming is true about the tax treatment of these various investments. Yeah, and that's something that when you're in the withdrawal phase of retirement, you really need to manage to get an understanding of what your um, uh, what your tax situation will be. You have a little more control than when you're just uh, when you're earning income and you're sort of taxed based on the tax code alone. Mm -hmm. Or I should say your tax bracket alone. Adrian, what about you? Any specific takeaways from today? Yeah, you and Eric uh, both touched on it. Just understanding the, the power of uh, inflation and really analyzing the situations that you can get in when you are withdrawing from certain accounts and understanding the tax implications. Like you said, Eric, it's, it's very complex. So it definitely takes a lot of, you know, time and, and studying to look in to see what's the best fit for your financial plan. Excellent, guys. Great, uh, great uh, episode today that we will wrap up. We are working on getting our site up, which hopefully we'll have by next week where you can sign up and get um, uh, get a download of a white paper and hopefully help it help that can help you build your financial plan. And I look forward to discussing risk tolerance uh, next week. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, both of you. Thank you for listening to Financial Independence. If you value financial independence, tell your friends and please leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen. This really will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, or to ask us the question, go to Retire with Roshan. That's Retire with R-O-S-H-A-N, RetireWithRoshan.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrant its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. Finally, our music is The Chance by Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube audio library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.